Hey there, and welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy Freitas. In today's episode, we are talking about that transition back to work, whether it's your partner going back to work or you. What I decided to do for this topic in this episode was invite my friend Isabel onto the podcast. Isabel is one of my OG mama friends. We met back when our oldest kids were toddlers. They were two. I met her on social media and then we met up in real life. So it was a real modern day friendship. And we hung out all the time until she packed up and moved across the world to New Zealand. At that point, she was a mom of two, and she decided to take a little social media break when she moved. It turned into a three-year social media break. We talk a little bit about that in this episode. But during that time, she gave birth to two more little babies, two more boys. And while she was in New Zealand, she was shocked to see how different her birthing and postpartum experience was than it was here in the United States. This experience became the muse for her newest project, the Atlas of Motherhood. She has been conducting interviews from experts and real moms all around the world, and she's now back on social media sharing these stories. In this episode, Isabel shares with us what she learned about the ways in which working families are supported in the country of Sweden. I had the chance to be one of the experts that she interviewed for her project, and I talk about tips and tools for navigating that transition back into work after your baby has been born for both you and your partner. And in this episode, I share some of those tips and tools with you. I also created a guide to support you and your partner in navigating conversations about the division of roles and responsibilities after your baby is born. This is a free download that Isabel and I thought would be really helpful for those of you who are tuning in because I have a feeling that after you listen to this episode, you are going to feel inspired to sit down with your partner and have some of these really important conversations about the transition back to work for either of you or both of you. All right, I can't wait to share Isabel and her work and her story with all of you, so let's dive in. You're listening to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy Freitas. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, mom to three, and I support mamas just like you who want a supported, loving, and rested postpartum so that you can flourish in that first year with baby. In this podcast, I'm sharing my conversations with perinatal experts from around the world and with parents who've been through it. While I hope that this podcast is supportive to you, it is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed health provider. I'm so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Hey friend, Isabel, how are you doing today? I'm so excited that we were able to pull this together with all of the pieces, the the time zones and the kids and the childcare, all the things. I'm really excited we got a chance to to chat today. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so excited to be here and share some of the information that I've been collecting from mothers around the world and get your take on um, some of this. Yeah, yeah, no, me too. So I'll share a little bit about how I know you, and then maybe you can share just a little bit about the work that you've been doing with the Atlas of Motherhood. So you and I met back in the day when our (laughs) kids were, gosh, I'm trying to remember. Do you remember how old Riley and Holden were when, when we first met? Oh gosh, I feel like maybe two or three. Oh my gosh, they were I so know. little. Another nine. <laughs> no, nine. So crazy. So you lived here in San Diego and didn't we have our first play date like at a little farm? I think we like yeah, I think we, we met we, we met on Instagram and yeah. then, and then we went to a little farm with Riley and Holden and yeah, I think they were two or three and we became friends you were one of my like 
you know, first I think mom friends in like the toddler stage. Yeah, um, same. You know, because I met I met a bunch of moms when I when they were really when she was really little, like in like little baby support groups and breastfeeding groups, and then went back to work and it was kind of hard to maintain friendships. And I'm sure we'll talk about that today. <laughs> um, but then, you know, once we kind of got more settled and she was a toddler, I'm like, I, this, this girl needs friends. <laughs> like we need to go on some play dates. And so we connected and then um, you and I went through a lot with each other um, just through motherhood. And then you moved away from me (laughs) to the other side of the world. Um, So maybe you can share with folks a little bit just about where you're at now and what you've been up to. Yeah. So I, both of my parents are from New Zealand, but they raised my siblings and I in the United States. Um, And they lived there for like 30 years. And then after the birth of my second son, my mother moved back to take care of my grandparents. And it was always on my heart to kind of live here for a certain amount of time in New Zealand to just get to know, because all my extended family lives here. Yeah. To just get to know them better and see, you know, where my family and my background is really from. And so it we talked about it, my husband and I, for years and years, but didn't know how we could make it work. And he'd actually never been to this country. <laughs> so he was a little hesitant. And then as my oldest, Holden, got, I think he moved. we moved when he was five. Mm-hmm. Um, so as he was getting older, we thought, you know, this is kind of, we felt like it was our last kind of chance because once he if he was going to start school and then get really settled um, where in San Diego that we felt like it would be really hard to uproot everybody. And so we just took a giant leap of faith and sold everything. Um, We didn't really even tell anybody we were going because we wanted to make sure we got um, the visas first. And then we thought it was going to be this really long process to get them. And it ended up being like two weeks to get our visas. And so we just bought tickets and moved. And um, when we moved- I still remember that. I still remember you just texting me and you're like, we're going. And I was like, (laughs) when? And you're like, like the end of this week. And I was like, no. Yeah. But I was so excited for you. And it's it's been so amazing to hear about I don't know, the, the life that you've been building over there and all that you've been learning and doing. Um, you took a you took a huge social media break and you got off the app. Um, and I, I'm actually curious, I know we're not here to talk about that, but I would just love to hear a little bit about that decision for you and that experience, just because I do talk a lot here on the podcast about, you know, just wellness overload and social media and developing a new relationship with that, with that, you know, the digital space and all of that. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that decision, actually. Yeah, it actually wasn't, when I did it, it wasn't like a set kind of decision, like, okay, today I'm not, I'm going to post anymore forever. Um, I just was getting to the point where I was like, what do I post? Why am I posting? And I think it was after I'd given birth to my third son and I was busy and I was just like really loving life (laughs) and the life that I was building here. And I just, I took a little break. I thought, oh, I'll take like a week off just because I felt like it was taking so much of my time and I was getting I mean, a bit addicted, like I was always scrolling or thinking about what I wanted to post or what from that day I was going to share, what my caption was going to be. And I know this is like... I I just want to share with folks, just for context, you were blogging and you also had um, a a business where you were selling skirts and you were making skirts and selling them and you were blogging. So you had a business also connected to the app. 
Yes. Um, but by the t- when I moved to New Zealand, I wasn't doing the business yeah. anymore. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I just wanted a little break from that and to just focus more on real life. Um, but the other thing also was that in San Diego, I felt like it was such an amazing tool to connect with and, um, with other mothers and create Mm -hmm. a community outside of Instagram. Um, and that's, I feel like what I really loved about it was either collaborating or connecting with other creatives, um, outside of the app. And then in New Zealand, um, I have to say we're a bit behind like when it uh-huh. comes to the rest of the world. So when I moved here, it just wasn't really the same and actually did meet a few other few mothers um, in Auckland from Instagram, like met up with them in real life. But it just wasn't I at the time I wasn't finding that same creative community in real life yeah. here. And so, yeah, I just took a break and it was a week and then it was two weeks and then it was a month and I just wasn't missing it. Like I didn't miss sharing my life. I mean, there were parts of me that, you know, I have, I then had family and still have family in um, California. And then I felt like a lot of them weren't able to see what we were up to or see the kids. And so that's one piece that I kind of miss, but there's something about taking like a moment in your life and then putting it up on social media mm-hmm. to, I mean, you're not asking for it to be judged, but in essence, whether people like it or not, even if you try really hard not to care, I think that yeah. human personality always we just care like that's what we're we're wired we it's hard to not care whether you get yeah five likes or 50 likes yeah and I think a lot of the ways in which our brain makes sense of the world is through our social interactions you know and it's I have another episode with Dr. Dan Siegel where he talks about you know you could share something and it meant one thing to you because you lived it and experienced it but then that act- the actual meaning you make from the experience itself can actually evolve and kind of get all twisted up based on the experience you then have with sharing it on a public platform and seeing how other people respond to it, you know? And I just think that that's it's really interesting. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm planning a social media break in June, Um and I'm really looking forward to it. And I don't share um, like photos of my family and and those sort of things. Once in a while, I'll talk about that. But I, I use it more as a professional from professional capacity. But gosh, I'm so looking forward to just not having um, this this thing that people have constant access to me around with. You know, like mm. I don't know. It's 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 really really tricky um, and. I love that your one week turned into how long? How long were you off? Three years. <laughs> Three years. And I honestly loved it. Like it's, um, it's. I mean, it's exactly what you just said. It's that, you know, I would send actually um, a friend of ours, uh, Chrissy Powers. Um, we text each other every day. So I would like send her pictures that probably I would usually put on social media when we moved here and she would say oh my goodness that's so beautiful you have to share that and I would think no but I don't want to like I want to keep that for me like I love this moment it's you know a beautiful moment but I just like I didn't have that same feeling that everybody needs to see this because it's so beautiful and I'm not saying that everyone that posts has that feeling but um yeah for me I was actually enjoying just living and loving my life for what it was and not feeling like I had to you know share everything with everybody yeah 
No, I absolutely can understand that. Um, and during those three years uh, off of the digital space, living your yes. life, right? There's more like margins in the day to dream up things. And what did you, what have you been working on in those three years? Cause that's what I want us to dive into and talk about today. Yeah. So I uh, started freelance writing once I um, went off social media and I've been working as a creative director for a pregnancy magazine here in New Zealand. And um, I started the Atlas of Motherhood about six, seven months ago. So after I gave, when I moved to New Zealand, I was pregnant with my third son, which was a surprise. We'd already like sold everything. And we were at my husband's, at my in-law's house. And I was like, I'm not feeling good. (laughs) I'm feeling a bit nauseous. And we took a pregnancy test and found out we were pregnant. We're like, oh my goodness, we weren't planning to move while pregnant. (laughs) Um, But it was actually, I think, well, obviously we were extremely excited. And then when I moved, I think I somewhat naively assumed that pregnancy, birth, and postpartum was this universal experience that um, was the same kind of for everybody. Like you just, I just assumed that's kind of what it was like. And then we moved and it was so different based on the culture and then the system here that it really inspired me to start looking at different ways that countries around the world support and care for mothers in that transition to motherhood. And so I just started reaching out to mothers and then experts around the world to kind of learn what those best practices of mother care and support look like in different countries. And I've um, compiled all of these interviews and kind of guides so that mothers anywhere in the world could take these practices and implement them into their own journey to motherhood. So, so beautiful. And I've been really enjoying what you've been sharing so far the little snippets, um, these interviews that you've been sharing so far. I mean, it's it's incredible to see what's happening around the world. Because I think, just like you said, when you have an experience, I mean, it's under. I think it's very understandable that a lot of times our lives are so focused on just the world around us, the very near world around us, right? So it's not the whole world; it's just mm-hmm. our world. And here in the U.S., things are done a certain way. And it's like you, like you actually lived and experienced things are happening so differently in all in countries all around us, right? And the way in which the systems are set up and structured, the culture of how new, ma- new parents are supported or not supported. And so today, what I was really hoping that we could kind of focus in on and talk about is the experience of paid leave. So you are pregnant or you are expecting you're going to be bringing a baby into your life and you are working or your partner is working and then there is a transition, right, into then becoming a parent, um, that period of time where you and your family are recovering and bonding and Um, caring for your new baby, and then the transition back to work, whether that's your partner, you, both of you, whether it's at the same time or staggered, you know, however that's going to look for each particular family unit. Um, And what I've learned from you is, has been really impactful in terms of what happens in other countries, because, you know, I really think that here in the U.S., we are we're not doing a good enough job in supporting these new families in this transition. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about what you have learned in these interviews 
And then maybe we can talk more about ways that we can integrate some of these pieces of of really making this transition more filled with more ease and connection and support, right, for everybody involved. And so let's we can explore that together once we get there, but maybe you could share a little bit about what you've learned. Yeah, so I emailed, um, I interviewed a mother, Asabia Britton. She's a mother of two and actually a midwife in um, Stockholm, Sweden. And her interview, I was just asking questions to get an idea of what pregnancy, birth, and postpartum looked like in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And with all of my interviews, I ask, what's the one thing that you think the world could learn from your country? Or what's your favorite thing about being a mother and raising children in that country? And she had responded that her favorite thing was that in Sweden, they're given an opportunity to be with their children when they're little. And she had told me that the parental leave system is great. And culturally, there's no expectation to get back to work quickly. And that um, due to the parental leave policy, partners or fathers are given the opportunity to be a big part of the child's life. Mm -hmm. And that really intrigued me because um, when we were in America, we didn't have, my husband had like no leave (laughs) pretty much. Like I think with my second child, I gave birth and I, I gave birth to him at like 11 p.m. at night and we went home the next morning and he was like working that afternoon. So um, I, you know, it can be really difficult. So I actually reached out to a, a Dr. Charlotte Evlander, who is a midwife and she also conducts research to create and implement guidelines around birth on both the regional and national levels in Sweden. And um, found out that Sweden has one of the best um, parental leave policies in the world. I think each parent is entitled to 240 of the 480 days of paid parental leave, which is just so much um, coming from, I feel like, America or the United States. And fathers or partners have 90 days that are reserved exclusively for them. So they have those like three months that the mother actually can't touch. Wow. And, um, but so I went to Dr. Evlander with this kind of set list of questions. And I guess coming from in American culture, I had this kind of preconceived notion about um, parental leave. And when I talked to her, it was like none of my questions were really relevant because the entire culture there around um, gender equality and raising children is so different than I could have ever really imagined that my my questions didn't really they just weren't relevant yeah (laughs) I'm so curious what were some of those questions that you were asking that here it would make so much sense but over there it just didn't even make sense yeah I guess like my main thing was trying to say like well how does the policy affect mothers um you know do do does your boss or your employer do, is it scary to kind of tell them you're pregnant or what's mm-hmm. the reaction mm-hmm. of your coworkers? Mm-hmm. How's the transition back into the workforce and how is that affected by um, the parental leave policy? But it became clear that um, it's not really just the government's family leave policy but it's actually the entire culture around gender equality mm-hmm. in Sweden and both partners really playing an equal role in child raising duties that um, Dr. Evlander says really gives mothers the choice in what they want to do with their career and lives. Mm-hmm. And I just found that 
so interesting. And she herself had um, actually personally really experienced um, the difference in cultures because she'd married an American when she worked as a nurse in the United States and she married an American and she gave birth to her first child um, with him and they'd moved back to Sweden to raise their baby and they were divorced a year later and then she met a Swedish husband two years later and had three boys with him and she said she'd really experienced both the American culture around parenthood and then the contrast Mm -hmm. with the Swedish way of doing things and um, Dr. Evlander said it really opened her eyes to how different your parenthood experience can be based on what the system and culture is kind of telling you to do. It's so powerful. And it's, it's like the air that we breathe in and we don't necessarily even realize that that's, that these discourses around gender and roles and expectations and um, our that they're surrounding us and impacting us, right? Um, yeah. That it just it, it almost gets like absorbed through osmosis, like yeah. in the air around you, and just and then it permeates everything, right? Um, so many elements of our day to day lives as human beings, and so oh, that's so interesting. Um, and so, in terms of what you learned from what they are doing in Sweden and and the experience that these families are having in Sweden, and especially in contrast to how we're doing things, say, here in the United States. Like, what are what are pieces that you think, because, gosh, I mean, it's, it's hard when you live in a country where the system is not built to be really supportive, right, um, and the culture either and the expectations. And so, I don't know. I'm so curious about what, what are ways in which we can pull from what you're learning, even though the system and culture around us isn't necessarily isn't necessarily going to make that very make it that easy. You know what I mean? Like, what, how can we, as individuals, have agency in terms of reclaiming some of these really supportive factors and protective factors when it comes to, um, you know that the fourth trimester and then the transition back into um, your work, your working identity. Yeah. I think um, what I found really interesting was that at BB Stockholm, which is the clinic, it's like a delivery ward, midwifery clinic, prenatal and postnatal care, um, which is in Sweden. And that's where Dr. Evlander works. She said, they try from the very beginning to intentionally signal that the partner or father's role in everything is equally important to the mother mm-hmm. and trying to involve him in the entire process. So once the baby is born, they try not to take care of the baby. They want the baby to stay with both the parents the entire time and give mm-hmm the baby to the partner as much as they give the baby to the mother. Mm. And then they don't allow grandmothers to be in the aftercare unit because Mm. they say often the grandmothers start kind of taking care or taking over the role, you know, saying this is how, this is how you wrap the baby or the baby's crying and the, you know, mother's getting overwhelmed and they'll say, Oh, let me hold the baby. And they say that often takes over that the partner's role Mm -hmm. and they want to show that it's the parents working together and the partner helping the new mother and that right then and there, they're kind of signaling that it's the parents and the newborn baby as a unit. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then they begin, they don't actually tell the parents how to divide things at home. But they start discussing it right then and there, like after the baby's born, about thinking about how they're going to share things at home, what the plans are for the future. And just by mentioning it, the parents themselves start coming up with 
solutions. And I think that's something that, I mean, I know I definitely never did. I just assumed that it would kind of all work itself out, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you're not alone in that. I think a lot of couples, I know so many couples that I've worked with, um, and the research sort of indicates this as well, that a lot of couples do not have those conversations beforehand, right? Um, And it's, and and then you're in it. And when you're in it and you're sleep deprived and, you know, there's, there can be a lot of frustration and resentment that can show up around these things um, or uncertainty or feeling, you know, for instance, if a part, if your partner, like I know my, my Dave, he had hardly ever like even held a baby before we had our first, you know? And so he didn't feel super confident um, about taking care of a baby. And so if, I or a nurse or my mom or his mom kind of were jumping in and correcting things or um, like quote unquote like rescuing these like tough moments like he was going to feel even and this happened you know with our first like would feel even less confident about it Um, and so I think there's just so much prep that are can be really protective for couples on so many different levels about when it comes to the relationship, roles, responsibilities, just baby care in general, like how are we going to get sleep, you know, because um, gosh, if we're both sleep deprived, like that's going to make things hard and it's going to maybe impact our relationship and it's going to impact a lot of things. But, you know, parenting doesn't stop once the sun sets when you have a baby, you know, and I think a lot of times it can be just sort of, it can fall on the parent who is um, lactating if that is something that they are trying to do. And gosh, it's just, it can be so hard and there's so many emotions can show up and it can really impact the family as a whole. Um, So yeah, there's so much protect protection that can happen in having these conversations beforehand it, it, I mean, it's great it sounds like in Sweden they're having these conversations like from the moment the baby is born but imagine if they were having them even before like how how impactful that could be too and if, if the culture is, is is as such in that country then I imagine these conversations are happening before the baby is born yeah I would think so because I you know they the father already is planning those three months you know of yeah. leave to take care yeah. of the baby. And I think um, what Dr. Evlander was saying was that it's so important that the partner father is equally involved from the very beginning, because that really does set the standard for the rest of your child's life. Like if the mother is the only one that is taking full responsibility for those really hard times, obviously the mother is going to feel way more comfortable in tough times going forward. Like if the your child's sick, the mother's going to be the one to take off work and go pick up mm-hmm. the kids. Mm-hmm. But if the mm-hmm. fathers had those, you know, difficult moments solely taking care of, you know, a sick child, then they're going to feel just as comfortable going to take pick up the kid, take off work and pick the kid up. Um, or take care of the kids when they're sick, when they're older. Yeah, and I think and so I can see how those like early those early days, right? Of um, and just those moments of like, is somebody coming in to, and not letting one of the parents or one of the yeah one of the parents like really navigate this this moment, right? And it's yeah, because how how do we learn is through experience of learning the cues, learning our kids. And learning their needs, learning what works, what doesn't, like what, how to, how to shimmy, how to shush in a way that's going to actually (laughs) soothe your baby. And, and all of that is, gosh, trial and error. I mean, I, I had, I had, you know, held more babies than my husband had before (laughs) ours first was born, but I had to learn her and her cues. Right. And Mm -hmm. as I built confidence in being able to take care of her, which definitely took time, um, you know, I, when, when things were hard then and in the future, yeah, I could totally see how then it falls more on my lap. I'm thinking about just with the pandemic, you know, and how many, um, 
how many parents who identify as women as mothers are the ones who had to take a step away from work, right, to navigate distance learning. And um, especially at least here in the United States, I know that was very, very common. And yeah, I just think that these messages permeate every part of our culture, right? And I think that, yeah, it definitely starts from the very beginning um, and sort of these really key moments as we're navigating those early stages of parenthood. It makes so much sense. Yeah. And I, that was a big question that I walked away with or kind of ended our conversation because I was thinking about, you know, in the United States and when I lived there and when, you know, my husband didn't have any parental leave, you know, he had actually no parental leave. It was just, um, yeah, he was working the day pretty much that I gave birth. And so it's what do you do when you're in that position? And Dr. Evlander said that it's really about, well, first of all, she said it didn't happen overnight. Like the policy changes, it started with like 10 days for the partner and then slowly evolved through there. But she did say that it's really about us as mothers implementing it in our own families. So during pregnancy, if you want your partner more involved in the responsibilities of childcare and home care, and you want a more equal division of roles, that you start discussing that during pregnancy and asking your partner, like, what are um, your expectations? How involved in childcare responsibilities do you plan to be? What's your plan um, for your role in parenthood and what will it look like? What's your goal as a parent? And those are just kind of starting off points to get an idea of what your partner's expectations are going to be. And then, um, of course, a lot of that, I think, often has to do with how we ourselves are raised and what, yeah. you know, our own parents gave us an idea of what we think uh, each parent's role is going to look like. And I think that, you know, it's nothing, it's something I never asked my husband. And I think that it is so important to get an idea. And that's just kind of your starting off point. And then you can share what your expectations are and what, you know, you would like it to look like and then how you guys can work together to create that, you know, vision of what you'd want um, the roles to look like. There's an intervention that I use with couples that I'm working with um, and yet whether they're expecting or even before if they're they're wanting to have a baby they're not pregnant yet though um, or they haven't taken steps to figure out how they're going to have a child yet um, whether that's through adoption or, or something else um, but I will I always talk to the couple about their families of origin um, and there's an intervention that I'll sometimes utilize it's called a genogram it's basically like a fancy term for a therapeutic um, family tree where you actually sit down and you take time to map out um, different symbols to represent different family members and different dynamics and you put both of you there and then you put the family like your extended family kind of around um, through this sort of um, diagram that you kind of like draw out with with the therapist and what's so powerful about this is when you walk when you step away from it and you look at the two of you right you and your partner in the context in the midst of all the dynamics that happened around both of you and then you come together right and you bring these these parts of you into this new family unit and there's going to be parts that you know for sure that you don't want to bring in right are you really wanting to do things differently um, there might be things that for you, it just feels like this is how it's always 
happened. And so this is how we're, this is how you do it. Um, but maybe your partner had a really different experience um, and maybe doesn't necessarily agree with that way of doing things. And so coming together and having a conversation, but doing it in this way where it under, where, you, where it's understandable, right? You can understand more of the context of the the cultural beliefs, right? Or the messaging or the dynamics from your partner's family of origin. That way, when they do certain things a certain way, it's, you might have some compassion for the fact that like, this is, this is part of their, this is part of their upbringing. This is part of their experience. And, you know, we're more likely to take a path that's familiar, uh, just the way that our brains are sort of wired, even from like an evolutionary perspective. But if the two of you kind of have clarity on this and like really do the work of understanding some of these pieces, then you can have a lot more clarity on what you want to do with your family, right? What things that you want to change, what things you want to bring together and bring from both parts of your, both of your families in terms of roles and expectations or dynamics and, and then what you want to change and being able to make those decisions like with your eyes fully open, right? As instead of just kind of diving into it and then just having these sort of dynamics kind of play out without necessarily understanding why. And then that's where kind of resentment or frustration or um, disconnect can happen. Um, so I think it's it's a really powerful thing to do and a conversation to have ideally before before you, the baby is there, right? But gosh, you can have, I mean, I have done this with so many couples that are already in the midst of it, you know? And so it doesn't necessarily have to be something that you missed out on. Like you can do this at any point in your family life, right? Just to kind of do this work to understand that context. So it sounds like this is is kind of what's happening or what happens over there, right? And in but but it's so it's just part of the culture. And so these are conversations that might be just kind of integrated into your care. But since that might not happen here, we're just we just need to be a little more proactive about that, right? Yeah, I think so. I think there because the culture really supports, I mean, it's almost like an expectation that the partner is going to stay home with um, the baby and that, you know, for the first couple months, the mother if is probably going to be more involved, especially if her aim is to breastfeed. Um, and then the partner as, you know, that isn't the baby isn't breastfeeding as much, then the partner starts to take over more of the care. So I think there is just integrated into the culture. And then, you know, in the United States, it's not really, well, at least personally for me, it wasn't even something that I thought about at all. I just mm. like didn't plan for it. And I think I was really excited to talk to you to kind of figure out, okay, so if we don't have parental leave, um, say your partner's go, you know, as two weeks maybe, and then they're going back to work, what are some ways to kind of prepare and plan not only for your partner returning to work? Because I think that's a huge transition that we don't really realize is going to be so so big I think you know I just yeah I never planned for it but when my partner went back to work it was a huge transition for me to go from having that at least just someone home with me all day and to help out to then just being on my own and trying to navigate that and then also going back to work yourself like what are the best ways that we can prepare for those transitions so if we get six weeks of maternity leave and then we're back to work how can we best support ourselves emotionally, mentally, you know, physically so that we are in a good place to return to work? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, I think just to kind of touch on the emotional component, right? Because there's lots of feelings that can come back, can, can come up when your partner goes back to work um, and when you go back to work. And some of those can be anger, right? Like, angry that I mean at first I wanted to say that like anger has primary and secondary roles anger can be show up as a core emotion um, when we feel like there's been an injustice or our rights have been violated in some way and 
you know what? I think that if someone's listening to this right now and they're hearing about how things are happening in other countries and they find themselves feeling angry, like that that's not what they get here, that makes sense. And that that is, hey, that is anger showing up in its core role. Like that is a very understandable response to hearing about these things because it feels like an injustice that we don't get that same, that kind of that space to to bond together as a family, to have that support from the government and from the systems around us. And so very understandable if anger shows up, you know, but I think that it can also show up as a secondary emotion when, you know, maybe, maybe we're feeling scared, you know, about our partners going back to work um, or we're feeling jealous that they get to leave, you know, um, and then maybe some, and maybe some guilt or shame around the fact that we have those sort of feelings and not, and, and, and maybe, yeah, just kind of fear or worry that they're not going to be equipped to do this on their own. And that sometimes when that's a, a really vulnerable feeling to have or vulnerable feelings to be experiencing, that sometimes anger can jump in the driver's seat. And instead of expressing that to our partners, we show up with that, right? With the anger, with the rage, with defensiveness, with criticism, with snapping. And gosh, you're sleep deprived. And so everything's going to feel rougher around the edges. And so that can be, those can be really common experiences um, when these transitions come up. And then I mentioned fear and anxiety. Um, you know, I think that I, I know from the research that we're more on high alert after a baby is born from an evolutionary perspective. That makes a lot of sense for there to be some fear and anxiety there. Um, it's actually meant to keep us more hypervigilant to keep our young safe. Um, and even if, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, we have, we could be safe, but still have that sort of like really ingrained sort of hypervigilance and fear, which can sometimes lead to those really scary thoughts. And then there can just be a lot of worry and anxiety about, you know, if it's, if my partner's not here and it's just me at home, then is all of this, then if something happens, it all falls on me, right? Like I'm the one that carries that mental load and that can be really heavy too. And there can be resentment just around that piece. Um, And then there can also just be grief of, you know, no longer having that little bubble where it's just you and your partner and the baby and that chapter is coming to an end. And when your partner goes back to work, it's kind of opening up your world to this other, to all these other relationships and this whole big world around you, right? Um, Maybe while, you know, for that, even if it's just a week or two weeks, maybe everyone at your partner's job, like left them alone, you know, like they kind of, I was understood that they weren't going to bother them during that time. But now the emails will start coming back in the phone calls and the obligations. And honestly, these are all feelings and emotions that can be very common for ourselves too. And it's our time to go back to work. I mean, I know so many moms and I myself have experienced where it's like you have like a couple weeks left before you have to go back and there's so much pressure on those last few weeks, right? But there's also just, it can be filled with the kind of worry or anxiety of what that transition is going to be like. It can almost feel like that steals the joy from, or the presence from those, those last couple weeks. When the truth is, is that you're, you, you don't go back to work and no longer you're no, it's not like you're no longer a, a, mo- a mother or a parent, but it just feels like there's going to be this huge shift and change and things are going to shift and change. And there just can be so many emotions that come up around, around that. Um, but when it comes to, to your question of, you know, let's say your partner has one week, two weeks off or a couple of weeks off. Um, and you know, you're preparing for that transition of them going back. I think first and foremost, really having open dialogue with each other about what it is you're feeling about the upcoming transition, you know, checking in with each other, communicating how you're feeling. Um, and then, and then kind of getting like, like, yes, connecting over the feelings, but then also getting practical and logistical, like acknowledging the fact that, um, you know, there's going to be a shift in terms of like time schedules, like, you know, they may have to get out of the house by a certain point in time, and they will be coming home at a certain point in time. 
And, you know, depending on each person's situation, um, we want to take into consideration like how much, you know, sleep every, each person needs and when they will be sleeping. Because, um, you know, just because you are staying home with the baby, that is still a job. Your boss just happens to be a baby. <laughs> and so you're, you both still need sleep to function, right? And so talking about like, how are we going to navigate this? And um, really talking about logistics in terms of, you know, boundaries with work, you know, asking your partner to have conversations um, as early as possible before baby is born, if possible, um, but as soon as possible with have conversations with their boss, with um, colleagues, with their employers about boundaries because maybe before they were able to work late once in a while or answer emails during out of office hours and maybe that's going to change and so sort of setting up those expectations and boundaries when we know what to expect it's really helpful so maybe some days your partner does have to work late okay knowing what knowing what days are ahead of time is so helpful for our worried minds or anxious brains, right? Like it's so helpful just to know what to expect. And if you're going to stay late on these certain days, what are the days that maybe you can come home early or what's going to be the plan so that I can also take a break, right? So that I also have time alone. Um, and for both of you, because if you've been working all day at an office, you also need a break. But so does the parent who's been home taking care of a little one all day as well. And so having conversations about how are we going to navigate these moments, right? Like maybe we check in with each other um, as you know, partners driving home from work and you both share with each other kind of where you're at in terms of percentage wise. Like if there was a bucket, I maybe I'm operating at like 20%. It's 20% filled. Like I've, I've got a little, but I don't have a lot. And just kind of seeing who has the capacity to, when they come home, like take over so the other person can recuperate. Um, and that's going to maybe shift and change depending on the day. Um, but then also speaking of that transition back home, talking about those sort of like those home, like coming back home rituals in terms of when your partner comes home, um, you know, do they, do you hand the baby right over to them? Like are, are do they typically need like a couple minutes, right? Um, 15 minutes to just kind of get dressed and change. Um, and just having these conversations ahead of time, having check-ins with each other, because there's just some days where we have it, some days where we just don't have anything left to give and being able to rely on each other during these moments is so, so helpful. And I think we can start by sharing feelings with each other about the, the upcoming transition um, and making logistical plans in terms of when we're going to get breaks and what these transitions are going to look like, what are going to be the boundaries around work, um, and just knowing what to expect. I think that these pieces can be really, really empowering for couples, um, you know, and then and then practicing, you know, before the day comes, I think it can be so helpful to have some practice days where you kind of, without the pressure of needing to get to a job at a certain time um, or being gone all day, like having practice days where the partner that will be working maybe goes off and does some prep stuff for the transition of going back to work, but then comes back home. They're not gone for as long. And, um, and also identifying the people in your life, the supports in your life that you can call on in these moments moments, right? Where, or during this, these times, if like, you know, I know that when my husband went back to work with the first, there was a day where I was just in over my head and I had, I, I literally had to put the baby down and walk to another room because I was just so overwhelmed by how much she was crying. And I was so tired and I knew that I could call my mother-in-law because I knew that she was available on those days. And we had discussed before that, you know, that she'd be available if I needed her. And it took me being willing to ask for help, but doing that was so supportive because I was able to then get out of the room, like rest a little bit. And then when my partner came home, I wasn't, I wasn't in a place of such desperation that I could like that if he needed a moment, I would have just like probably lost it. Right. But just having <laughs> that support was so helpful. Um, and then, and then, you know, obviously I'm a therapist, so some, I oftentimes do say that having an outside person to 
hold space for the feelings that come up around this transition, to support you and your partner in communicating around these things and developing those communication skills can be such a protective factor too. So yeah, those are just a couple of things. <laughs> Good. I mean, those are, I feel like that's so comprehensive and it's so, that those are so many good tips. And I think my um, husband and I are still, still use that. I feel like we only just kind of started using some of what you're talking about, like um, knowing that if he's like putting the boundaries up with work, because he loves his job. and. Yeah knowing that the day the days that and my youngest is two and I still feel like I need to know the days that he's going to be late and then having those times so if you're going to be late those two days can you come home early or you know take the kids to swim practice or just knowing in advance and when I, I feel like when you're home all day and then you don't know it's like this it just creates anxiety and you know, a bit of resentment sometimes. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's, you know, for both, for both, like what I just said, when my husband went back to work and I knew that I had someone I could call that could come over and watch the baby. Um, But also for when I went back to work, making childcare plans ahead of time is such a good idea, I think, because Gosh, so much mental space can be taken up by worrying about what childcare is going to look like when you go back to your work or when your partner goes back to work and you need to go to an appointment or you just literally need a break because you're a human being who deserves a break too. Um, You know, I think that making these decisions and doing the work to identify what your childcare situation is going to look like beforehand is so helpful. That way, when it's coming up to the date when you're returning or your partner's returning back to work, you already know what that's going to look like. You already have made those decisions um, so so that you can just be present for that that little, that season that's left, right, of being home all the time and not being at work yet or just being all together at home. Just having that in place, identifying people that you can rely on um, for childcare support beforehand. Oh, like if I could just tell everyone the, how important that is, I want, I want everyone to hear that. I think that it's so critical to have that in place. Um, and, you know, whether that's a family member um, or it's somebody that's a hired help, um, identifying where you're going to get that support and who's going to be watching the baby so that you can also you know, prep that person and work on that relationship of trust, right? Trusting and having some practice days with them as well. And, and also navigating the relationships. Cause I know that like, you know, if you're having a family member come in and help, um, they might have a certain way of doing things and making sure that everyone's just on the same page before you're in the thick of it. You know, um, I think that can be really protective as well. Yeah. I think that when you're in the thick of it, you're in such a vulnerable state and often oh, like, yeah. you know, your dishes, probably not for you because your house is always like immaculate, but. Oh my gosh, me. Isabel. <laughs> that is, oh my gosh. That is only, only because the days you came over, my, my lovely husband, speaking of roles and responsibilities, he is, um, that is his thing. Like I don't even yeah. touch the dishes. Like, cause if I do, he has a certain way of doing things. And so that was one of the things we gave <laughs> to him. And, you know, he's so funny when people are coming over, like, that's really important to him that like, that's all cleared away. And it's so funny because I grew up in a household where that was not important at all. So I actually love that you brought this up because (laughs) like for me, it's like for me cleaning, it's like you just clean the surface, but like I don't get behind the crevices, you know, and like (laughs) the dishes are there because that's just what a house that's lived in looks like. Like that's how I grew up, you know, with both my parents working as lawyer, as lawyers, you know, they worked for the, for the county and they worked 60 hour weeks and there was just always dishes and there was always, dust bunnies and it was just like dog hair everywhere and laundry that you just grab it from the pile like it never gets folded you know and my husband grew up in a household that was so different so it really took us having some (laughs) real hard conversations about this um 
and dividing the roles and responsibilities. And yeah, so he, he, he does the dishes and like he, that's important to him. So when you came over, he knew and he was like, <laughs> well, he would do the dishes. And I was like, whatever, if that's, if that's your thing, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. But, but think, but you know, and then, and then there's certain things where when it came to like, child rearing where you know his his dad was a fisherman either he's his family's portuguese and um his dad was gone many months out of the year and that was very normal in his family's culture and so for my partner to be really involved in the child and raising our children that was something that he didn't have a strong model for so yeah there was lots of lots of big conversations there that we had to have but when it comes to dishes isabel that was all that's all him <laughs> Well, I'm just joking, but your house is usually very clean. Um, But I, like when I had my third baby and I was here and in New Zealand, you can get um, home support actually um, if you have three, five and under. So I had a, a five, a two, and then a newborn and I, my midwife said, oh, I can recommend you for some home help, just someone to come in and, you know, help around the house, do the dishes, do the laundry. And I was kind of just in such a vulnerable place. And I felt really ashamed because the dishes were piled in the sink. There was like piles of laundry and like baby clothes mm-hmm. was spit up everywhere. And the house was, I feel like such a disaster at that time that I felt like I couldn't even, like it was free support and I couldn't even accept it because I, you know, was too embarrassed, I guess, that I, you know, that I couldn't stay on top of everything. And so I think identifying those people that you know you can trust and, or like you were saying, have those practice days beforehand so that they have an idea of, you know, your house and kind of what your lifestyle is like. Um, And just so that you can feel comfortable to let people in, in those vulnerable, vulnerable places and like accepting the help and support. Oh, I think that piece is so huge. Oh, giving, permitting ourselves to receive the support. I mean, gosh, like I can't even imagine having like free professional, free support given to you because of the government. And like, that's just, that just blows my mind. Um, But how sad is it that I couldn't say like, like I really needed it obviously, but I was just, I was like, no, I can't have someone come in and see that like my laundry is up to like my head and like, (laughs) you know, it's just. And so I think that, I think that there's probably so many of us that could relate to that. And so I do think that I always recommend for couples that are preparing to take stock of, you know, if you live in the U.S. and you don't have that kind of like, you know, a midwife who's going to recommend this for you and get you the support, um, you know, to take stock of the people in your life and each single person that you would consider like in your like inner circle of people that you would trust that you want to come in to offer support or to, to be a support person to you during this really tender season, right? And vulnerable season of postpartum. And what could each person uniquely offer in terms of support and giving and permitting yourself to ask for it and identify it? Because gosh, if somebody came to me and said, you know what, Cassidy, I was taking stock of the people in my life. I'm about to have a baby and I'm really you know, trying to prepare for that. And I know it's going to be a lot. And you're somebody who can, I mean, just knowing my own skills, but someone might say like, you're somebody who I think could maybe check in on me a couple times during those first few weeks um, to ask me how I'm doing really, you know? Um, and if I needed to get more support, like find a therapist that you maybe could help me find somebody, will you do those check-ins with me? I would feel so honored, you know? And if my, um, if somebody said, hey, you know, you, you make this really great, I don't cook. So this was not, this is, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a great cook, so this is not a true story. But they're like, I really love this one dish that you make. Do you think that you could drop that off um, on um, during those first few weeks, maybe on this day or that day? 
Um, or, hey, you're really good at organizing things. Do you think you could organize a meal train for us? Or, you know, I um, I always feel so um, comforted when, when you're around. And I wonder if you could come over and hold the baby um, while I rest. Or maybe just to talk. Or can you come over and I'm so tired. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to be, I'm not going to be very chatty. Um, I just really want to spend some time with the baby, but the, I just can't stop thinking about the laundry and the dishes. Like, could you come and help us with that? Like identifying who these people are. And I'm, I mean, I'm sharing these as like scripts, right? Like text this person, call this person and tell them how they mean to, how much they mean to you in these ways, in ways in which they could support you. And being told specifically what task would be helpful and when is so helpful, right? Because mm-hmm. people are going to say, well, I'd love to help, but like it's hard to know how to come in and help sometimes. And so being really direct can be so, so helpful and a game changer for us here in the States that might not have this governmental support to like cultivate that support for ourselves. Gosh, Isabel, this has been so great to connect with you. I know we're coming here to the end of our time, but I just wanted to give you a chance to share with people where they can find you because this is just one country. You are doing these interviews and sharing information about these interviews from countries all over the world. So where can people learn more about um, the work you're doing with the Atlas of Motherhood? Um, So you can go to the website, which is theatlasofmotherhood.co. Or you can follow along on Instagram or Facebook at the Atlas of Motherhood. Well, I am going to include the links to all of that here in the show notes. Isabel, thank you so much. I am so excited for you and I can't wait to see where all of this goes. And I'm just so glad that we got a chance to connect. I miss you. You've been listening to Holding Space Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might want to hit that subscribe button to be the first to hear when new episodes air. Looking for more support? I teamed up with a board-certified OBJN to bring you two e-courses for expecting and postpartum parents. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Thank you so much for inviting me into part of your day today. I'm so grateful, and I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful rest of your day.